Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Brandon Munro, Uranium Market Commentator, and also CEO of Bannerman Resources, an ASX Uranium Junior with assets in Namibia. Today we discuss the effects of COVID globally on production, in particular in Kazakhstan, Namibia and Australia. We also discuss the need for mergers. Will companies be able to survive and what have they got to do to survive? And for our Crux Club members, we talk about China and its impact on the market and how it is interacting with companies on different exchanges. We also look at what 55 out of 95 US reactors are going to be doing. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Brandon, how are you doing, sir? Well, thanks, Matt. How are you? You're not bad. Ready for our weekly catch-up. Seems like a quiet week, though, compared to what's been going on. It has been quite Quite a bit happening in equities uh, this week, but as far as the market goes, I think it was just one of those weeks where it just did its thing. Not a whole lot of market-defining announcements, no big catalysts, nothing that had uh, Twitter running hot or my email clogging up or my phone running off the hook. Just, Just a week in uranium. Well, I think the interesting thing that happened yesterday was the fact the market had a little bit of a shock. The the U.S. Fed um, made noises about a potential second wave of COVID nineteen, this coronavirus, um, which got people nervous. I think it got people, perhaps younger investors, nervous. I mean, lots of seen this thing before, and we, you know, we had all sorts of numbers thrown at us as a result from market experts. Um, so maybe, and again, you know, we perhaps should stay away from all things medical as to whether whether, whether we believe that to be true or not uh, in the U.S. So, but maybe we should talk about COVID nineteen how it's affecting you know countries around the world. Um, so maybe let's let's start. Let's why don't we start with um, Kazakhstan because that's something we talked about over the last couple of weeks. Any new news there? Yeah. So the public information obviously is that Kazakhstan's cases have reduced but they're still significant so they're at about 250 bit below 250 new cases a day and if we put that in a little bit of context when Kazatomprom announced that they would be suspending wellhead development for at least for an estimated three months their cases were averaging 50 per day so still five times up from when they decided it was appropriate to take that action And it is worth thinking about Kazakhstan because I think a lot of the market is looking at that three-month estimate, wondering if they would potentially come on early, which they'd have to do in the next couple of weeks, or if it can go longer. And we've talked at least a couple of times about why that production disruption extending would have such a compounding effect on both sentiment as well as the pounds available in this market. So we've got still quite a few cases coming through. They're not out of the woods yet. Um, Karagandi province, which borders the most important production centre of uranium in Kazakhstan, uh, there was a New York Times article that talked about a number of towns being shut down or shut in, um, various restrictions because of outbreaks there. Um, Someone who works in the mining sector in Kazakhstan that I deal with, not in uranium, but in another commodity um, they told me a story during the week about how there was a case in their office building and so they've all had to go home for another two weeks and how disruptive that is. So there is that sort of disruption going on and 
So we've had the guidance that the three month is likely to take its full course. And what'll be really interesting is at the end of this month to have a look and see what guidance Kazatomprom gives going forward. And you know, when you talk about those sort of numbers that we have, I think it's very open to them to play it safe, be a bit cautious and stay offline. And let's just remind people what the implications of that are, which is, we, we, we talked about this last week, Mr. Primatov talked about the possibility, or at least they would consider coming and buying in the open market, not something that they had envisaged a couple of months ago, certainly not discussed a couple of months ago. So the implications in terms of availability in the open market are potentially quite, quite big. Particularly if they don't have a firm idea of when they're going to come on again and how long it could go. Uh, because if, if these decisions are truly being made on medical grounds, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, uh, you know, the, the scare that you referred to about second waves in the US. Well, Kazakhstan starts uh, hitting winter as early as October on the steps there. And they could well be looking at, well, what would the implications of a second wave be? Would they do a couple of months of wellhead development with the risk that they'd have to shut in again and delay and see winter out? So there's a, <clears throat> there is a lot of uncertainties there. And just because of the sheer volume of their production uh, in the market and the fact that the fourth month of a production disruption will have a much bigger impact in the first three months because of the ISR mining, this could really have quite a big effect once they start coming into the spot market. Okay, so implication for uranium investors or people thinking of investing in uranium is that the macro story just builds and builds. It's it's accelerating. If Kazakhstan Prom has to come into the market, there's going to be less supply around. So therefore, when this thing pops, it should pop quite quickly. Correct, correct. And what has slowed the uranium recovery down for the last three years? In other words, we had fundamentals that uh, two and a half, three years ago were very but the market hasn't reacted to it. And it's been the presence of inventory primarily that has done that. It has enabled utilities to defer buying decisions and various other um, mechanisms within the market that's disconnected the price from some very, very strong fundamentals. Once that inventory goes, and particularly if it starts going backwards because you've got large spread producer buying of uranium in the spot market, plus a nice little sentiment lift coming from either financial investors or utilities realising they need to restock, then you've got the ideal conditions for the fundamentals to match up to price. And price has got a long way to go before it matches fundamentals. It certainly does. I mean, again, discussed on many of our previous uh, weekly catch-ups. Okay, well, let's let's kind of move it on because I, I think that the what we're trying to understand is you know where what's happening in the world of uranium in terms of production. So let's go for your your home from home, Namibia. Uh, what's the news from there? Well, Namibia has uh, locked down the Orongo province or Orongo region again. Orongo is the region in Namibia that's host to all of the uranium mining. Bannerman's Atango project, DPLO, Langer Heinrichs, Langer Heinrichs. Uh, Paladin's Langer Heinrich project, and of course the giant Rossing and Husab projects that are owned by two of the Chinese utilities. So they're in lockdown. They're in lockdown for 20, uh, for 14 days at this stage. But importantly, 
during the first lockdowns, Namibia ironed out all of the details around mining and what's allowed. And it, as a result of that, mining has been classified as an essential service. So mining carries on. If we go right back to our first discussions about COVID-19, you can still operate a full workforce and you can still operate a mine, but you can't do it perfectly easily when the rest of the society around you is shut down. So there, there will still, it'll just make it hard for them to hit targets and do so on for the next couple of weeks, but essentially full production. Okay, so when do we start um, understanding or hearing about the numbers? In terms of, you know, will it be 5%, will it be 10% uh, reduction in their you know, operating output? Uh, we'll get that through Bank of Namibia figures that'll only come through at the end of the year. Okay. Uh, we're talking about um, utility-owned mines here that have got no direct disclosure obligations in that way. They obviously need to keep the IAEA informed and the Namibian government informed. Uh, but there's not an awful lot of transparency there. And for that matter, not not all of that uranium's hitting the, the market in any case. A lot of it goes directly back to those utility owners um, for uh, absorption into their own supply chain. Okay, but the, the net effect being the, the same. Um, so do you think, given the conversations we've had in the past couple of weeks, and I think some other market commentators have, have commented too, with regards to the position that um, Cameco finds itself in, it's you know closed down for the right reasons, but it's going to open up for the for the right different reasons. And Kazat and Prom saying that the potential they may potentially need to come into the market to um, to buy. Is there any are there any clues that um, whether well, Husabs of this world would also you know keep reduct a uh, keep production at a level which may help global prices? I don't think the two things are related. Um, HUSAB and uh, Rossing are operating according to things that are essentially independent of market. You know, Rossing's operating to deliver into contracts that will have some market mechanism. So, you know, they've got a bit of an interest in seeing the price increase. But essentially, whatever they don't deliver into a con- into a contract goes back to CNNC, and with Husab, it's largely that case. So I don't. I think they will be uh, operating according to a vacuum as far as the market goes, and the the things that are worrying them are far more operationally based on the ground. Okay, so let's move on to an, another group who perhaps care even less about the price of uranium, which is Olympic Dam. BHP's product because it's a byproduct there they they just it's, it's just part of what they're doing rather during the normal course of business when while mining uh, copper so um, what's happening in Australia are they being affected are you seeing any any signals or signs there no they're not being affected at all in fact South Australia the state in which Olympic Dam and uh, Ranger are based ERA's Ranger mine it's had I think two new cases in the last six weeks um, they've got no active cases in the whole state. And in fact, just this afternoon, the South Australian government announced that it would be opening its interstate borders. So its borders with Western Australia, Northern Territory and uh, Victoria, New South Wales on 20th of July. So as far as they're concerned, they don't have a problem in South Australia. And uh, so the chance of it affecting either of those mines, particularly once they've now made all of the relevant adjustments, blue team, red team, et cetera, et cetera, bus in, bus out, all of the different things that they've done, uh, I just don't see any capacity for disruption in the short term. 
Of course, there's a chance of a second wave in Australia. That's what has people concerned. Um, what happens when we have to open up international borders in a more substantive way? But for the foreseeable future, I just don't see any substantial potential for disruption there because of COVID. Well, I, th I think the Australian policy, I mean, you're, you're world leading. I mean, the, the number of um, incremental deaths due to COVID-19 is, is extremely low. So, yeah, that's a big moment if the borders open up, if international flights do start coming in. And you know, I guess we shall see when you, when you guys decide to open up the borders. Um, can I talk about one other thing, Aussie? Um, because potentially uh, uranium just lost its kind of uh, seat at the table in, in, in a way uh, in that Paladin had just been removed from the AX300. What was your reaction to that? I know we want to stay away from commenting about companies specifically, so that I want to talk about this in the context of uranium as a sort of leading commodity in the world. Yeah, so it is significant. So the S&P runs a series of indexes on ASX. Um, people would be familiar with the All Ordinaries, then there's the ASX 100, ASX 200, and ASX 300. So essentially the ASX 300 are the 300 largest stocks on the Australian Stock Exchange that meet certain liquidity requirements. There needs to be a minimum free float, et cetera. But for, for all intents and purposes, it's the 300 largest stocks. And if you fall below an, an acceptable market capitalization, or if the rest of the stock market goes up and you maintain your market capitalization, but a bunch of the companies push in front of you, then you get delisted out of that. So for anyone who doesn't understand that. So yes, indeed. So S&P announced their rebalancing today, which will take place uh, next Friday, third Friday of June is one of their quarterly rebalancing dates. And Paladin, unfortunately for them and their shareholders has been pushed off. It's not a massive immediate effect for them, but that will limit some of, uh, some of the investment funds capacity to invest who are mandated according to ASX 300 requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So there probably will be some selling to come out of it. But what's relevant and what's important is now there isn't a pure play uranium company um, in, in that ASX 300 that isn't closing a mine. You've got ERA there that's got a large market cap, but it probably, um, because of its liquidity requirements and the fact that Rio now owns 89% is not investable. So if you were to define ASX 300 as a institutional grade, for argument's sake, there's nothing institutional grade left in Australia. Um, that's on the one hand, you know, rather sad given where we were before this bear market started. But on the other hand, it's a very interesting opportunity and it will certainly entice consolidations. For example, if Paladin had consolidated or merged with another company in the last six months, they'd still be in the ASX 300. And there will be companies that will see the opportunity to one plus one equals two, but that two gets you into the ASX 300 and therefore two goes to 2.2 or 2.3. Um, when you see both the capacity for index buying, but also the appetite that's building amongst institutions that we know is there, where a number of these investors, they love the uranium setup. They love the fact that it's so asymmetrical at the moment, that it's a very good hedge against broader macro risk because nuclear power doesn't, doesn't march to the macro tune at the moment. 
plenty of very, very credible commentators, writers, analysts who are saying, look, it's, it's gold first, of course, but uranium second in terms of an excellent metals hedge against um, macroeconomic concern that's just elevated in the last day on the states, as we saw. So once you see a company re-emerge, which could be Paladin or could be some other um, group, into that institutional investment grade, I think they will get a big lift under the wings. And that's going to drive a number of things into the sector and something definitely worth watching. I, I'm fascinated by um, some of the business models out there. You know, we, let's say we want to talk about companies specifically. So let's just talk about models. So you've got groups who, and we've spoken to a few recently, who are talking the language of M&A. Others who are talking about joint ventures. Uh, and others who are just, you know, obviously, you know, they, they believe they've got what it takes because their their single asset is is big enough to be, you know, uh, a leading producer at some points, subject to financing and, and a lot of things going right for them. Um, do you do you think that I've got to, like I said, we're dancing around an area here that I've got, I've got to be quite careful about? Is you know, do you see mergers happening in this space because this? Um, the macro story is building, but at the same time, it has taken a long time to get here. We've seen a few raises in the market to deal with different problems, um, and there have been varying degrees of expensive um, and varying degrees of, well, let's just keep the lights on and keep it going to the end of the year. Um, do you see some companies needing to merge, needing to uh, come together? Not any... Um, because they're running out of cash, but to be a much more interesting story, to be a bigger story in what is a sort of, you know, dwindling market. Yes, I do. And in fact, I'd go even further than that and say this sector is crying out for consolidation. And if you run through, first of all, there's the point that you made just about efficiencies. So there's too many management teams and too many overheads for not for too few assets at the moment, basically. But you then need to look at expertise. That's an even tighter commodity in uranium than money is. You need people in uranium who have dealt with radiological issues, who've built mines, who've run mines, who've dealt with regulators, who've dealt with the IAEA, who've sold the stuff, who understand how the nuclear sector operates, who can make strategic decisions on all of this. Um, who can gain the credibility of the buyers, which are utilities, which are a totally different animal to someone who's prepared to take a copper concentrate or something like that. There's just so much to understand in the uranium and nuclear sector. And this is a sector that's essentially been in a bear market for 30 years and been in a very deep bear market since 2011. You don't see the, the flood of young talent that's come through this sector and the people who were leaders in it, a few are still fantastically still hanging around and still in the sector like Dustin Garrow, and thank goodness that he is. But he's working because he loves to work. He's not working because he's of a working age. And so many of his compatriots have made the decision just to, just to retire. Some of them aren't even with us anymore, sadly. So there's, there isn't enough expertise for the number of projects. So that's the second thing. The third thing is capital is becoming more difficult. And as we were just explaining, if you can bulk up, you've got access to deeper pools of capital who are more suited for a commodity like uranium. And that 
uranium is capital heavy. It's not like little CIP plants in gold or, you know, buying the, the plant down the road that's just stopped operating in Kalgoorlie to punch out 10,000 ounces of animal, something like that. Uranium is capital intensive by its very nature. So you need to have access to more developed pools of capital. And then from an, an operations point of view and at a more global level, when a utility looks at the uranium space right now, what they see is they see a couple of dozen uranium companies who are all assuring them that we will be ready in production in three, four, five years. And it's not a utility's job to go and do the detailed analysis on the environmental implications and how realistic that is, or try and second guess what their technical processes are, or even understand that there's daylight between a scoping study and a PFS and a DFS and what that risk profile really means. So the utilities see this array of projects that seem to all be very likely to come on stream. And so what's the big deal? Where's this supply crunch? They just think that we're lying to them or, or exaggerating, or we've got confirmation bias because we love our own project or something like that. What this sector needs is the better projects to consolidate into a handful of lumps. And those leaders then go to the utilities and say, look, we're here to build a long-term uranium business. That's what we're passionate and, and invested in here. But you need to understand, Mr. Utility, that we will only bring these projects on sequentially as you demonstrate as the market that we need those pounds. So all of a sudden, the, this array of projects that are all declared to be fantastic separate into a few stragglers, which will be found out by then, and a few clumps of credible projects in the form of uranium companies that are serious about building. And that's a natural progression in this sector, and it, and it will happen. The problems that we've got is, um, I guess, th there's a fair bit of management who are sort of clinging onto their jobs at the moment. Um, there's shareholders that are a bit reluctant to enter into even a script for script consolidation at the bottom of the market. You know, as much as share uh, company A might merge with company B on identical ra uh, ratio to what they do at the top of the market, there's still a sentiment driven thing because they're merging at 20 cents, not 50 cents uh, that happens at the top of the market. So shareholders are more likely to support a, a, a merger in an elevated situation. So, and when we were just getting a little bit close because the uranium price was really going down and desperate and we were you know, seeing a few, certainly I saw a few CEOs who maybe saw this as their opportunity to exit and go into gold or copper or something more, more fun. Um, then it picked up again and, uh, and so they're, they're in there for a little bit longer. So there's a, a bit of a long answer for you, Matt, but I do think that, that this sector requires consolidation from both a push and a pull factor perspective, from both a top-down and a bottom-up perspective. Great answer. Love that answer. Um, we spoke with Dustin actually yesterday and it was fascinating. He, he echoes... A lot of what you've just said, because like you said, you know, he has been around the block. He's worked um, from all angles in the industry, you know, um, so he, you know, he d does have a view. And, and the interesting thing he said was that 
Uh, one, with regards to management, the, the people just aren't around who've been there and done it before. And he said, you cannot underestimate uh, that, that factor because he said, I saw it in the last cycle. There were lots of names, lots of conversations, lots of pitching, lots of promises made. And very few companies actually got over the line. He's talking about uh, companies in Athabasca Basin. He's talking Australia. In, you know, you know, he knows Namibia. You know, he he saw what worked. He saw what didn't work, and more didn't work than worked. Okay, so which is not necessarily a direct correlation to share price because the, the sentiment in the last cycle, you know, was very positive with anyone who mentioned the word uranium. If they walked into our bank and said the word uranium, we, we were interested. Um, but the reality was very, very different. He said it's going to be no, no different this time around. In fact, here's, here's an interesting thing. And I'm looking at them here. He gave me, he said, he's got a couple of handfuls of companies that he think will make it based on his knowledge of what's happened in the last couple of couple of cycles. And it's, it's kind of fascinating, um, you know, his view having been there and done that. So um, I kind of enjoy that conversation um, with him saying, you know, what people say and what they're capable of doing are two very, very different things. And he kind of, again, off, off camera gave me sort of examples of, you know, companies who he thought talked a good game but had no chance of actually getting over the line. So you know, it, a lot of what you just said, you know, uh, makes a, a lot of sense to me. Um, I, and again... You know, Dustin's ex explanation of how the utilities work, how the how the buyers think, you know, what they're looking for, um, what they actually believe some of these utilities companies are and are not capable of delivering. It's it's um, it's obvious to them. It's perhaps a bit le little bit less obvious to us uh, uranium investors, but uh, it's, it's interesting getting an in, in insider views on that one. As usual, there's always. Many, many unknowns. Um, but as a uranium investor, I think the, the mood seems to be positive. We're seeing companies who are coming into the uranium space, who are applying for permits and licenses, or buying into uh, companies with permits and licenses which haven't really done anything. In the, uh, and that's, I think that's, that's always kind of indicative of, of, of the mood. They feel that they're going to be able to get financed. I know they're sort of jumping on the bandwagon, but nevertheless, it's, it's a sort of early, one of the early indicators that this is a market which perhaps is, is moving the right way. Again, we're, we're having brokers approach us, you know, talking about are we aware of any companies or projects which would like money for this space? And we're not talking big money. These are the obviously very, very early stage um, barely even expiration, just, I think, asset hunters. Um, so, look, um, Brandon, look, I, I think we started this, this, this call thinking not much happened this week, nothing really to discuss. We've done it again. We've perhaps uh, g g gone off in an impassioned speech about several topics there. But, look, um, appreciate your time. Um, have a great weekend. Are you up, up to anything fun this weekend? What's happening? Uh, just chilling this weekend. I've been really busy this week. Yeah. And I was pretty busy last week as well. So I've got a few things to catch up on on the home front. No bees, unfortunately. So nothing quite that exciting. I know. Uh, but hopefully I'll keep myself busy with my daughters. That'll oh, be enough for me. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, me too. I must check up on those little bees. It's been wet. It's been very, very wet here. It's, it's terrible. In fact, do you know what I'm doing? I'm going up on the roof. We've got a leak. The lead work on the roof somewhere is not working. So I've got a, obviously a man of many skills 
I, 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 that's so not true. Uh, I'm at least going to try and spot where where the uh, where the leak is, um, and then maybe call a man who can. But these days, it's very hard to get anyone to come out because they don't want to be in contact with us. So, yeah, that's 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 my task for the week. Um, okay, well, Brandon, thanks so much again. We'll, let's let's talk next week. Hopefully, some exciting developments. You never know. Never know, but we always manage to find something to yabber on about and. Uh what I'm understanding the audience doesn't mind it either so great to chat thanks for having me on again look forward to next week thank you for listening if you've enjoyed the interview why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website cruxinvestor.com and of course our YouTube channel Crux Investor plus you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn we really love getting your feedback so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon